restaurant was dope. A good restaurant, Very right? Dope. Yeah. Matthews and Clifton. Matthews and Clifton is an excellent restaurant, Italian restaurant. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us on the Sopranos podcast. <laughs> I'm Chris D'Amato. I'm Lily D'Amato. I'm Paul Mancini. And I'm Jordan Hugh. And you can hear in the mic that I'm smiling because it's our retrospective. Hey! Oh! Yeah. oh. I'm back. Since when you talk like that. Uh, it's uh, season four retrospective. And this is always our favorite. We say this every time. This is always my favorite episode to record. It's a much more casual chat. We're going to give some rankings, some top threes. So, yeah, season four, uh, sort of like how we do with our individual episodes. Uh, let's start with this question. What is your overall reaction to season four on a whole? If you just had to talk to somebody, not about an individual episode, but just like you're selling someone, you know, they oh, I watched seasons one through three. Tell me about season four. So your initial reaction to it and... Because we do a lot of rankings on these retrospectives, where would you rank season four with the other three, if you had to? I never knew how to watch season four. Every time I was watching a new episode and thought I had some idea of what the structure was going to be, the show did something else, and I didn't know what to expect. The show started doing this to me at the end of season three, when that season didn't really have a typical ending. Mm. Ralph Cifaretto is not killed. The show kind of ended in a weird place at the end of season three. So coming into season four, I was almost anticipating a return to structure. Keep in mind, listeners, I'm not a Sopranos expert. For the most part, my viewings on these are, are for the first time. Um, so I keep waiting for it to become more like a regular television show where I can see a really recognizable structure and I ramp up to a certain point and maybe there's like a big blowout in the penultimate and then there's the falling action in the, in the final episode. That's not the case in season four. Season four keeps doing these wild swerves. There's these really weird tonal shifts from episode to episode, but instead of being frustrated by that, I kind of found it thrilling. I kind of tuned in each time I was watching an episode and had no idea what I was about to get. Uh... There's a comic relief episode really early on with Christopher. It seems like the big battle against the series villain, Ralph Cifaretto, happens in the back half of the second third uh, with whoever did this. Um, the big showdown turns out to be not between Tony and Carmine Lupertazzi or Johnny Sack, but between him and Carmella by the time we get to Whitecaps at the end of the season. Uh, I never knew how to watch this season. It kept me on my toes. I thought it was great. Um, I like season three a little better just because of some themes that season three really dealt with and there were some stronger episodes for me in season three, but that's not to say that the best of four can't compete. I would actually rank four just below three for me uh, and then probably two and then one. Mm. This is the bravest season they've done. I think because of what Jordan mentioned, some of the ways in which it's unpredictable and beautiful and, and idiosyncratic and strange and darkly funny and and sad, a lot of it about ennui, a lot of it about um, the anxiety that uh, people in America and America generally experienced after 9-11. I think of this season often as kind of a bridge between the first three and the last two or one and a half. Yeah. Um, when, it, when so many things changed in the world and changed for the characters uh, in the turning gear of this season. I don't know where I would rank it, but I think I look at it now more as that bridge. And when I say it's brave, I mean because of the ways in which they swerved, the ways in which they told stories in different ways, even ways that might have alienated someone like me when I was a young man and, and thought I knew everything. So it's a, it's a pleasure to come back and watch it again. It's been, I, I think almost every, with one exception, Christopher, I think basically every episode in this season is a rager. 
even a low-key one, mm. even quiet episodes, fairly quiet, have moments that blow me away to this day. Yeah, I mean, this isn't the first time for me. It's, the, it's more than the second time. I don't recall how many times I've been through this show. I just love it. But this one, this is the first time I've watched as a, a, a married homeowning adult. And I find I'm watching it very Braggart. You oh, braggart. Yeah. <laughs> humble, humble, humble brag. brag. <laughs> humble brag. Humble brag married homeowner. Yeah, sorry. Not to brag or anything. Um, no, I just, um, I've always thought this, uh, I, I'm personally, I'm someone who is always more interested in uh, personal relationships than like action per se. So like four is kind of good for me in that. I would have never found it boring because I my favorite parts of the Sopranos are the personal relationships over the mob stuff, quote unquote. But, you know, it, it just, it gets really dark and it gets really sad. And now having perspective back on 2001, 2002, when I was just starting high school, you know, and, and now seeing this in a post-COVID world too, I'm seeing a lot of similarities in how people reacted to those big events and how life has gotten sadder and darker and I find myself wishing for better times and so I, I just think season four really reflects that and it's very painful to watch in a good way, in a way of not painful like I'm bored, painful just it's not easy to watch. But I, I really, really appreciate that reflection of the time mm. and mm. incorporating it without telling us it's incorporating it. It's just kind of implied, mm. you know, so, yeah. yeah. I feel similarly to all of you. I have a hard time ranking it because it is so different from the other ones. It's, it, it feels a little bit like an oil and, and water uh, situation and I do agree with Paul's assessment uh, that it's the bridge uh, gun to my head my, my order at this point would probably be two two is my favorite of the seasons we've seen so far uh, followed up by three four and one and that could change on any given day by the way I like that that question could all switch around maybe I'm crazy but yeah it, it's it this is a this season is a symphony. It's just beautiful and complex. And I can see why when this came out, I was I was like 15 years old when this season aired. I was in high school. Uh, and high school boys are not known for their love of subtlety. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, you know, this may not, this season may not have been what I was looking for at that age at that time. But again, and as Lily articulated, and we're in a world now, especially because we are homeowners, this feeling of the bottom could drop out and this feeling of the ground we walk on may not be stable was new for a lot of Americans at this time. Being a homeowner in the 90s must have been freaking awesome, man. Nothing could stop America in the 90s. We're the goddamn America. We're the goddamn United States. 9-11, I think, woke a lot of people up uh, to like, whoa, the world is complex and interconnected and we are more vulnerable than we think. Yeah, I feel that in the post-COVID world as a homeowner that like the next catastrophe is always looming. What is the plan for the future? And in that sense, if, you're, if you have that in your head and you're coming at it from that 
viewpoint. You're immediately with Carmela on her pursuit in episode one of like, what happens when this ends? Because all things end. Americans were feeling that for the first time in my lifetime anyway at that point. So it's a fascinating study in that, but also just the characters are great. The stories are great. The, I, I, can, I can still, to this day, even having a much higher appreciation of season four, I can still appreciate the idea that for some, maybe watching this week to week it might leave you feeling like it's slow. But as a whole, this is a gorgeous piece of storytelling Carmela's journey is so powerful, so well acted. The exquisite acting this season is top notch. If I had to rate the seasons by acting, this one might take the cake just because this shit is really hard to do. Sure, yeah. It's hard to have scenes about living trusts and uh, um, redecorating that are not actually about living trusts and redecorating and make them interesting. Sopranos does a bang up job here. Great new characters, great goodbyes to familiar characters. Season 4 is a massive success. But on that point, I want to throw another question back at you guys. This season, we've, we were saying from the beginning it felt different. It was a departure. Jordan, you said it was a departure from whatever formula we'd come to expect. and uh, Yeah, not just from Sopranos, from TV sort of in general. Although right. The Sopranos has never quite played by the rules, but maybe more for another yeah, yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, so what was different? So let me ask you these questions for discussion. What was different about this season? Why did it feel different? And what about it when you first watched it? Like Paul, for example, and I don't know if anyone else feels similarly. You might have just seen this the first time, Jordan. Much of it, yeah. Yeah. But why didn't it work for you initially when it aired as opposed to now? Uh, that, that's a question maybe specifically for Paul, because you mentioned several times throughout the season, this one didn't do it for me. This one didn't do it for me at the time. I hated this when I first watched it. So it's a two-part question. Why is season four on the whole so much different? What's with the eyeball endings, the focus on money, and to Paul specifically, what didn't do it for you then that does now? Well, let me tell on myself in another way. When I first watched the show, I had never been to therapy. Mm. So I went to therapy somewhere in between watching it for the first time and coming back, and it opened up a new appreciation. I also had not been in any kind of long-term relationship. And then I was, and I kind of took that woman for granted, and she couldn't do that because she was too bright and too special, and she left. Mm. So, yeah, I appreciate this season more now, um, and what that means, and what it means to be in a relationship, and to deal with what Lily was talking about. A lot of these interpersonal things, with family, with uh, your contemporaries, um, things that are a bit more subtle, things that might engage with more like passive-aggressive character traits. Um, when I was 20, I don't think I understood nothing about that, but I did not appreciate it enough to get what David Chase and this crew were trying to do. I don't, I don't think. Um, and that's why the season... It's not that nothing worked for me, but I was like, this season was a dip. Is it possible, or fair, uh, and if it's right, and if what I'm about to say is correct, is this a bad thing or a good thing for the show? Is it possible that this season... The quality is there. The writing is there. We're all storytellers. Objectively, these things are there. The acting has never wavered. Is it possible that this season is just not as appealing to as wide a range of people as the first three might have been? Well, I mean this with love. This season's not really a good time. Mm. Um, mm. It deals with a lot of really dark themes, and I think it really gnaws at people's fears 
I wasn't prepared to talk about this so early in our episode. God damn you, Chris, for making me talk about this so early. But this um, this season in particular, building on what gets started in season three, really talks about the erosion of all of our institutions. Our political institutions, our friendships, our marriages, um, our uh, romantic relationships. Uh, it's like there's no trust anywhere. And so uh, through this whole season, even in the lighthearted Christopher there is this acid feeling of corrosiveness mm. in everything. Like, nothing is stable, nothing can be trusted at any moment. That, like you said, the bottom is going to drop out. And again, not to unfairly compare, but to actually bolster your point, watching season one, it's dark stuff, but you can have fun with it because most people sitting in the audience are never going to have their own mother try to kill them. Mm -hmm. But yeah. your marriage could disintegrate. Yeah. Your finances could bottom out. Yeah. Your family could erode. Season one has a buoyancy to it, yeah. uh, and that sense of fun even plays into season two. And look, the show always has fun moments. These guys come out with things that are just hilarious, yeah. and Chase has just this perfect pitch-black sense of humor, and what a crew accompanies him on delivering some of the funniest material possible. Look, the intervention scene in, in this season is one of the funniest things I've ever seen on a show <laughs> ever, and, and we'll get into that. Uh, but... Um, you know, listen, season three had those really pitch black episodes. It had, you know, Employee of the Month. It had University. It had some really rough stuff to deal with. Those were good issues to talk about. They weren't isolated to those episodes, but there was still something lighter about the season as a whole, even though it was a darker show. Season four comes in dark, and everything about it is dark, and you don't really see when you're going to get out of that, <laughs> you know? The season does a good job of getting you in their shoes, feeling what they're feeling, right? The characters are feeling. Tony's very bored, you know? And to your point, Jordan, you know, these are all... The topics they deal with in, in season four are all things that make most humans uncomfortable. Yeah. And so I wonder how many people, and I hope that this doesn't come off as condescending, I wonder how many people watched who didn't like it because it just made them uncomfortable and they weren't able to identify that feeling that it to to because if if you're uncomfortable that's such a visceral almost fight or flight and it's i don't like this and if you don't give it more thought which you may not because it made you uncomfortable yeah. it may be difficult to to identify that actually, no, this is very good. I'm just not feeling very good. Right. I when I go when I look at this season and I go back to the beginning of the show and even our show, there was something interesting and even something cool about what these guys did. When I look back, you know, what their lives are like, the way they make their own lives hell, the way they make other people's lives hell, I look back with less and less nostalgia to them stealing a car and painting it for a science teacher. Like, who gives a fucking fuck? These guys are horrible. <laughs> they, they make nothing, they add nothing to society, and that's why we feel this way. Mm. Um, even being a gangster at times is boring and unfulfilling. Mm. That's part of this season, too. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, to, to the credit of what both of you just said, something finally clicked in my brain, because there was a disconnect with fans. I My family's all very Italian, and I have an uncle who has several daughters. I think that's important for what I'm about to talk about. He has several daughters. And um, 
I remember having a discussion with him. I don't see him often. He lives in another part of the country. And I was visiting him years ago. And this was shortly after season four aired. And he was like, yeah, I used to like The Sopranos, but this last, I don't know, it lost something. I'm like, what do you mean? Articulate. Because this was like, I was a super fan when I was having this argument. I'm like, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? It's still great. What, what do you mean? Like, I don't know. It's a gangster show. And uh, I'm seeing this guy, you know, he's, he's fighting with his daughter. His daughter's, you know, got a problem at school. It's like, I'm here to see Paulie Walnuts. And, you know, it's like, and yes, we've talked before about how there's the hits and tits crowd, as uh, Jordan right. has brought in, where they're just, they, they want the action. They want some guy face down in a bowl of pasta with his brains blown out. Right. This was not a good season for the hits and tits crowd. No, in fact, it was the least, other than the one extremely violent murder in the middle of the season, there are the least amount of actual deaths this season than any other season. But, um, you know, just to, to, to your point, he probably didn't want to escape the end of his workday by watching a, a frustrated father fighting with his college-aged daughter, which is what he was going through at right. the time. Well, But you can escape into a mob fantasy. Yes. And the first three seasons deal with some very dark subject matter, but there is a certain amount of that mob fantasy escape, and that is being pulled back here. Yeah. There is no escape. Well, right. Well, that's the risk you run with art imitates life, life imitates art, right? right. The closer mm-hmm. you're going to try to make this, you know, relatable to people's lives and searching for that specificity of character that allows that relatability to happen, you're going to hurt some people. Mm. You're going to hurt some viewers. People and, say uh, yeah. Succession is like King Lear. This got there first. Tony is super powerful as a North Jersey mobster. He comes home, his kids don't give a fuck. It's great. It's one of the best parts of the show. Yeah. 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 Let's talk one more thing about Tony real quick, and then we'll move on. But uh, I've mentioned this in every retrospective, and the pattern holds. Each season casts Tony in a larger thematic sense in a specific role. Season one was Tony as son to surrogate son to Junior and an actual son to Livia. Season two saw Tony as brother to Janice and to his brother Pussy that ended up being killed. Season three saw him as father to his own kids and surrogate father to Jackie Jr. Season four casts Tony as husband slash partner, husband to Carmela, and his dealings with New York become a much more prominent issue. That's more of a partnership. So it casts Tony in a partnership marriage role. Uh, how do we feel about this development for Tony and um, how that all went for him this season? <laughs> went about as well as his role as anything else. <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah, he, he's not doing good well at any of those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, I think a lot of men idolize Tony Soprano. I think they still do. Uh, even I think he's cool, and I you know, spend a lot of my time with you folks talking about what a piece of shit he can be sometimes. Right. Uh He's easy to idolize because he's powerful. And he's also not a guy who looks typically like the kind of guy that we're taught is, like, the cool guy to look up to, right? He's not in shape. He's not traditionally handsome. He's not, uh, you know, Tom Cruise or something like Mm -hmm. that, right? Um, But there is a power to him. Uh, but it it it's a it's a dark power. Yeah. Now we look at him also as someone to admire because just being crude for a second, this guy fucks a lot of women, mm. right? And it's like, wow, how cool it is to live in that big house and you got this wife at home, but also you get to go out and you have total sexual freedom. What a, a every married man's fantasy, I'm sure, that you can go out and fuck whoever you want with impunity, right? But this show really brings home consequences for that, like. 
yes, Tony goes out, he's super powerful and cool, he fucks whoever he wants. What does that do to his wife, by the way? And then what does that do to him? Mm. And it brings home the consequences in a really real way. And I, I think that's kind of a drag. I think that's also the reason why some men don't love this season, where it's finally the chickens come home to roost on Tony's abuse of his wife mm. and his marriage. I think along those lines, I, I wonder if actually Tony might have the most trouble with this kind of relationship. More than, certainly more than as a son, where I think he did fairly well, more than as a dad or as a sibling or a surrogate sibling, because a partner, particularly in a marriage, not only has to love, but ha- has the capacity to love, but they have to have the capacity to be loved, which I think is actually the harder thing to possess and sustain. Mm. Um, and it's very hard for Tony, I think, because of so much of what he's been through and indeed the trauma that he comes from. Um, I'm not, def- I'm not just defending him because uh, those who have been traumatized will traumatize others and Tony visits it upon a lot of people uh, so that's just a thought about mm. what the complication of this particular kind of relationship is for him the fascinating part of this is the battle and I, I go back to the Hawthorne quote no man can wear one face to himself or another to the masses without being bewildered as to which may be true now no spoilers but season five breaks this Tony role formula a little bit, and we'll talk about that when we get there. But one thing I notice now after four seasons and looking at the role Tony is cast in each season, he has these two iterations of these relationships. Tony has son to Junior, Tony has son to Livia. He only gets to really keep one at the end of that season. Season two, Janice and Pussy, he only salvages one, and it's changed. Uh, season three, his own kids changed, but he salvages it. Jackie Jr. is gone. He can never hold on to both. And in this season, he holds on to New York. It's changed, but he holds on to it. His marriage is gone. He loses the wife this time. Very good, Chris. The first one, he loses the blood family member, the person that is closest. Right, the more vital connection is there. Absolutely, the more important. Really nice, Chris. Yeah, Yeah. very good. Uh, You know what else is good? Food is very good. Food is good. So we love I think food. It's time Here for it's a top three. Top three. Top three song. Three on top. Time for Ellen's shark fin soup. So, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, here's how this is gonna work. We've done this several times now, and I think we like the stride we've hit. Each of us are gonna give our number three. Then we're gonna give our number two. Then we're gonna give our number one. And then we're going to talk about them, see where we have crossovers. Again, we do not discuss these with each other before the show. So these are this is spontaneous discussion. Some of us might have doubled up on these moments, but we like to just throw it out there and see where it is. So with that said, we're going to talk about Season four's top three food moments. We'll rotate who starts just to give everybody a different turn, turn, at, the, uh, turn at the plate here. But I'll start us for food. My number three food moment is happens over several episodes in season four. It is Tony with the money in the duck feed. Mm. Cute. It's not oh, people yeah. food, but it's food. Nice. Um, I have two honorable mentions. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry, three honorable mentions. I'm sorry, food, food. This was a really tough list for me. This whole retrospective, I'm going to be like this. I apologize. I have three honorable mentions for food, and then I will do, give my third one. I'm sorry. Uh, my third, I'm sorry, my first honorable mention for food moment 
It is the missing orange peel beef in Whitecaps. <laughs> My second honorable mention food moment is Alan Saffidley's shark fin soup in Whitecaps. <laughs> My third honorable mention food moment is the sour cream in the eggs in whoever did this. Oh, nice. All right. And then my actual number three is Tony's new popcorn machine, Mergers oh. and Acquisitions. Oh, wow. Yes. The popcorn machine made it. I didn't think of that one. Nice. Uh, all right. Quick one honorable mention. Uh, Furio and Carmela, the scones mm. in Eloise mm. and the sexual tension. Uh, number three, AJ's French toast. Whoever mm. did this. Mm. Nice. My number three is balsamic vinegar. Mm. Very good. Mm-hmm. From Modena. Yeah. All right. So that's everyone's number three and a couple honorable mentions there. My number two food moment is Johnny Sack catching Ginny with the box of candy. Yeah, the weight. Yeah. Yeah, in the weight. Uh, my number two uh, is Artie Bucco's Armagnac in <laughs> Everybody Hurts. <laughs> number two, Tony and Furio have dinner, quote, together. Mm. Unquote in strong silent type. Mm, very good. Uh, my number two is Angie Bombanzaro giving out samples. <sighs> yes. Oh. That's the first episode this season, yeah? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's what kind of starts this whole roller coaster. That's why I chose it. Yeah. Wow. I'm, I love how varied these all are. We may all have the same number one. Let's we see. Should, we should, I think. We absolutely uh, should all have the same number one. Should we all just say one. it at the same time? Karen, Karen Zidi. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I love the diversity of the two and three, and we all have the same number one. I suspect that's going to happen a few more times There today. was no way around that one. Yeah. yeah, that one is, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's, we'll obviously have a big moment to talk about Karen Zidi at the end, but let's everyone go through their number threes and just sure, talk yeah. about it briefly. Uh, duck feed. It's, look, the ducks, we know what the ducks symbolize. He talks about it in episode one, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my family. The money, all of the issues that money represents. I've talked about this several times. The words fidelity, trust, these concepts that back paper money that we deal with and how much that's tied into the family here this season and Tony going in and noticing that something's missing and just the fact that he uses the duck feed to bury the money and all of this is going on with the, and he loses his family at the end and it's just... That's just good writing to me that they did did it that way. So Tony's money in the duck feed and using that as the device. And what Carmella ultimately takes money from. And yeah, that's that's all great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. My number three was the popcorn in Tony's new popcorn machine. I just, I think Tony regresses so badly in season four um, and, and even reverts it sometimes to a childlike state. And I think this is just a good symbol for that. He takes such joy out of just having this endless supply of popcorn to bring his little bowl back to. Uh, you know, Lily, I think it was even you in a previous episode had said this. Like, this is like this ultimate like eight-year-old boy fantasy of just like, exactly I'm going to have a, a movie room and a popcorn machine. It's like, good <laughs> lord, I'm my man. I'm grown up and I'm rich. I'm right. you know. <laughs> uh, It is slightly healthier than him eating endless ice cream sundaes, but, you know, just not good. But fun. Nice. Uh, my number three is from whoever did this, uh, the scene with Carmela making French toast for AJ after everything that's happened with Ralph's boy, Justin. And, uh, I th- you know, for a, p- a lot of people, I think that breakfast food is like that comfort food. And mm. um, for me, it would be waffles. But mm. if I was in that place, I would get Lily on the phone and be like, call JJ's diner. <laughs> we need the waffles. And um, AJ at some point liked French toast. Maybe when he was younger, the comfort is really for Tony and Carmela. 
right, pamper right. the kid. Right. And um, I just love how sweet it is, how awkward it is. Um, Tony kissing AJ's neck and AJ being like, I gotta, I gotta make a phone call. Like it's, just, <laughs> yeah. it's so it's sweet and real and incredible. And um, you know what I think part of what we do with food. Mm. So nice. Uh, my number three was the balsamic vinegar. Um, I'm really fascinated by the Carmelo Furio uh, thing. Love this this season, and um, you know I I'm. I'm an empath, and I definitely, like, could feel Carmela. He comes, she's missed him. He's out in Italy. She, you know, is that, does he love me? Does he not? But I feel this, you know, and I've missed him. And he comes back, and I'm, I have, how long has she thought about what he might bring her back? And he brings things for the kids, and that disappointment. And then to have that balsamic vinegar, you know, he felt bad, too. And it was just, yeah, I, yeah. I, I love that moment. That's yeah, great. Special moment. Candy and Ginny Sack uh, is my number two. And um, this is an important moment, obviously, in the episode because it's the turning point where Johnny Sack is able to step back and, and look at this all objectively and, and call off the vendetta against Ralph. And it de escalates everything in the end of things. But um, look, as somebody who struggled with his weight uh, and still struggles, um, I just, it was just a really powerful standout food moment. Uh, and, and it, and it's not only a moment that has food in it. It is about food. It is about the, the hiding of the food and the lie and the, the, the trust in this marriage. And, um, just the whole joke was about her weight and it, it just, uh, yeah, yeah. it was just an emotionally impactful scene. I thought for a person who had done little to no acting before the show that Ginny did a wonderful job here. Vince Curatola, he's a master, obviously. So uh, pr- just great work by these two actors. Nicodine is an addictive substance. Uh, and um, I was goddamn dealing me a cunt. Yeah, and then he gets down on his knees and, you know, the, it's just beautiful. It, it's, a, it's a tough scene, but it's a beautiful scene. So I had to give it a spot on my list. Yeah, there's a, a really interesting parallel in the weight, too, because we also see Tony so many times eating whatever he wants, and nobody says anything to him. Right. You know, it's yeah. it's the double standard. Uh, and then also, what made me really sad about the food that Ginny Sack hides is, like, this woman of position, like, she doesn't even hide good food. She mm-hmm. hides, like, the candy bars that you buy at, like, the supermarket. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So it's, like, not even... It's just sad. You know, I feel bad for her. I do. Yeah. Um... Well, on a more humorous note, um, my number two food moment is the uh, Armagnac from Everybody Hurts, uh, Artie Bucco's ill-fated uh, gamble at uh, at living the gangster life is to invest in the new vodka, uh, Armagnac. the next vodka! Chris, the hip approach. It is uh, specifically the moment in the episode where he offers some to Janice and Tony, who are having dinner, and they both skeeve it. They yeah, skeeve yeah. it so hard, she says, oh, no, the histamines. Yeah, yeah. Right? And then he ends up ordering something better, and you just watch Artie's face fall, and he retreats with that bottle, and you're just like, it's one more nail in the coffin of, like, he's so fucked on this deal. Um, I've never had Armagnac, and I will never try it. Right? <laughs> it's been we really should have got a bottle. We should have all tried it. Right? I'll never drink it. If I were of Armagnac, I would have a, a, a fatwa on damages. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, my number two is from the end of Strong Silent Type, Tony and Furio. Mm-hmm. The parallel of them, well, I was going to say making dinner, but Tony's dinner's been like prepared for him to nuke, I think. And Furio, very simply, kind of just 
cooks what's handy. Um, so there's this great parallel, the differences between them. But then also we see the similar qualities that they're both lonely in some important ways. They sit down and eat alone. We just came back from eating together, much better in my experience, um, because <laughs> part of food, and we see this on the show as well, is tribal. We yeah. sit down together and that sort of thing. I just, I really liked that as an ending, the way it was executed. Yeah, well said. Yeah. My number two is Angie giving out samples. You mm. know, we hear many times in this show that a mobster's end is either dead or in prison. And that moment kicks off everything because Carmela realizes that if either of those two things happen, she's fucked. Yes. And how do I keep my family going? And Tony has no sympathy for that. No, doesn't give her anything of, I understand that, that that's scary and let me assuage your worries. No, nope, none of that, you know. And so that, that visual of Angie going from, you know, a made man's wife to this is, is very significant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the big uh, numero uno. Yeah, this is all, all of our number ones, so we can just top right in. Karen Zidi. It's, it's the definitive food moment of the season. Sure. And it's cool Maybe even one. the show. I mean, uh, for, for one thing, it, it lingers through several episodes. It's the litmus test of if Bobby can let go. Yeah. And then the scene itself is also cool for multiple reasons, and this, some, some, are, some of them are even supernatural. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Karen Zidi, what do you think? Well, I, I love that it's so teased, right? Yeah. I, I mean, this is a multi-episode spanning plot point of just like, I'm not ready to eat this thing yet because it's it's the last remnant of my wife, right? Um, and yeah, no, it's 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 silly, but also it's it's uh, it's it, heartfelt. It's silly, but it's also it's and it's believable. Like, it's I, believable. I would have a hard time totally. eating that ziti. Yes, um, you know, I I think other people have been in that same situation where they lost someone suddenly. And there was something that they had prepared. It doesn't even have to be food. Right. It's just something they left behind. They were thinking we would all eat it together or enjoy whatever this thing is together, and now you can't. Right. Uh, what do you do with that? And uh, are you then healed from eating it, uh, or does it damage you? You know. Um, you know. It, it, it was a great moment when they actually sit down to eat it together. I remember feeling uh, mixed emotions. On the one hand, I was. Sad because I thought maybe Janice was manipulating Bobby, but actually I was thinking more about it. And actually, Lily and I discussed this prior to this episode. Yeah. I was also happy for Janice because I thought, you know, she is working towards a goal with him together. She's not manipulating him into healing. I think she wants a life with him. I think this could be the first real thing in her life. Yeah, I, what Jordan and I were talking about is this watch for me, I'm watching Janice in an entirely different light, one that's far more sympathetic. The first time I ever I watched the show, I remember any time I saw her, my response was, ugh. <laughs> and I watched that scene, those scenes as massively manipulative. And watching it now, she really does help him. Yeah. Through that, you know, because I think the big question that one would ask, I would ask this, is what does it mean when this is gone? What does yeah. this mean when I eat this? It will it mean I'm healed? Will it mean I, I I don't love her anymore? Will it mean that her memory's gone? What does this mean? And it doesn't mean anything, you know. Ultimately, um, or it could mean everything. It's whatever you put into it. But 
Karen's still dead. You still need to be a father. And and Janice really helped him through that. And maybe it was self-serving. Well, and it's also the method. I mean, she traumatizes kids with the Ouija board thing. Yeah. Messaging Bobby online. Right, it's icky. She, she gave uh, uh, Jojo Palmisi's chicken marsala to Junior. Right. Like, you know, she was being yeah. underhanded. Correct. But maybe for a good reason. But, but when, <laughs> Which is wild. But she yeah. doesn't know any better. Think of where she came That's from. That's true. Right. She doesn't know how to overtly take care of somebody. I don't think she was entirely thinking of him. I do think this was her in to get into a healthy relationship. But if you forget about Bobby for a second and you think about Janice, she, she, you know, she's been with Richie. She's been with Ralphie. Think of all the other people she's been with. God, good for her to want Bobby. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be fine. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, these, these scenes are so great. I think because of the complexity you guys are bringing up, that it's in part a manipulation, but Bobby is absolutely stuck when she meets him. Yeah, he's burying a cake at her grave. Yeah, and yeah. that's part of what she latches onto, like that she's moved by, there's something, there is something different about this guy than the other guys. Um, and the way it's executed with this story, it is human, it is so funny. Steven Sharippa, I've said this before, has this ability to cry in these scenes, and I get it, and I feel for the character, but I still think it's really funny. <laughs> because it's over the top. Yeah. You know, and he's such a big man, you know. Right, so it has that lugubrious quality we're that just is funny, not, yes. Yeah, we're just not accustomed to see that, so we, we laugh, but, you know, yeah. Do, do you think that if Livia died, Johnny... Soprano was going to bury a cake for her. <laughs> right. Right. Janice doesn't know love like this. Right. She doesn't know it exists. Yeah. And then of course we have the moving wine glass. Yes. So Karen is there with Spe- us. Yep, yep. Yep. That's special. Um it moves like one inch this way, one inch that way, and then yep. oscillates back. If that doesn't prove to you people uh, if you skeptics out there there's an afterlife, I don't know what does. Um <laughs> so, uh, Yeah. Um, it's pretty fucking stupid, but well, um. something though. <laughs> if Car- if Karen is there, if Karen is there, how does she feel about this? I don't know. Mm. You know, right? Yeah. If I'm Karen, I'm not very happy about this. Probably not. Run. It's yeah. A, it's yeah. A, it's a, but I would well, like that's right tough, knock that glass over. That's what's tough though. <laughs> and so, I would get into the steamy mirror and like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this, is, this is a step down for Bobby. Well. Not in all ways. People are not that black and white. It's a step up for Bobby in that it may help his career. Right. Uh, which, you know, he said might provide him some much-needed ambition and direction. The one guy who is not thinking about that. Correct. Who has had that opportunity, right? Right. The other yeah, ones yeah. were, yeah. Uh, but I think it's a step down in maybe his general day-to-day happiness. Right. <laughs> but, if I'm... but it's a big step up for Janice. But if I'm Karen, I don't think that. Right. Yeah. If I'm the ghost of Karen, I'm I'm not thrilled with this. I just died. All right, so that's uh that's our first top three in the books. Kaboom! It's Karen Zidi, number one. I love the uniform number one pick. It's so, just it was undeniable, correct. undeniable. Yeah, the undeniable Zidi. Yeah, the, the, that was the winner. Let's move on a little bit here. Something that happens in shows as they go on, uh, and this is inevitable. This is just. This is just something you have to do when you're writing a prestige drama like this that goes on four, five, six, seven seasons. Uh, the show expands its scope a little bit. Uh, I'll compare it to Game of Thrones because it's so wildly popular that most of our audience will probably at least be able to 
recognize a little bit. But if you watch what's season, uh, what's Game of Thrones? It's a it's a it's a television program here in uh, the like movie. a game show. Game, yeah, yeah, Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Yep, they they spin the wheel, and uh, if you win, you. Uh, you you get to have sex with your uh, with your brother. That sounds great. <laughs> no, uh, it's, <laughs> it's a it's a show uh, that's on HBO, die. and um, the first season you really just kind of are following these two families. It's really just like the Starks and the Lannisters. You got Robert Baratheon in there as king, but okay, so it's like Jersey and New York. Right, exactly. Uh, or or it's even like just two two competing crews in Jersey, but then like, <laughs> but then as the show expands out. Each season, you get a wider scope. Okay. Right. So what I want to talk about here for the Soprano. Well, then you I'm have. So like, sorry. No, who's the Iron Islands and the you know the Stannises and all these extra characters that you don't meet until seasons two and three and four. So for this season, the big expansion is we have our Jersey crew and our Jersey people, but the New York family has definitely stepped up in importance to the overall narrative this season. Johnny moved to New Jersey, Johnny Sack, in season three, and Tony expressed a little concern. Uh, but the concern seems to be justified because Tony's never had more problems with New York than he does in season four. And while the, uh, the pos- possibility of an all-out war gets circumvented, this was a big narrative thrust of season four on the mob front, is this dealing with Carmine Lupertazzi. So let's talk about the New York family and the show expanding whether it works, whether it's a good thing for the show, how you feel about it, what you liked, what you don't, and how we feel about these New York characters, the expansion of Johnny Sack and his protege Joey Peeps and Carmine and Carmine Jr. The other thing that those are all interesting, I'm a big fan of Carmine Jr. Um, I love that actor, <laughs> Ray Abruzzo, he's very funny. Uh, I forget the name of the actor who plays Carmine Sr., he's great too. Great complications. The other thing that complicates the stuff with New York and makes it bigger is not a new character, but Polly simply dialoguing with Johnny Sack. Mm-hmm. Um, just those scenes create big complications. Um, all of which I think are great because Polly in so many ways is or has been the consummate gangster, the consummate survivor. Mm-hmm. But to me on this show, loyalty and disloyalty have always kept ominously close quarters. And so for Polly to be moving out and then as we just saw when we talked about Whitecaps, the scene where he's presenting himself again as the consummate loyalist who was just feeling Johnny Sack out is dizzying. How, as as you mentioned earlier in this retrospective, Chris, the false faces, it's bewildering. Mm. I think the first time we see Carmine this season is in For All Debts Public and Private, where he criticizes Tony for wearing shorts. Don doesn't wear shorts. Uh, right. So I think, you know, that <laughs> that gives us just a little peek into how New York feels about New Jersey. Yeah. Right? There's a continued illustrated feeling that um, that New Jersey's like Bush League. Yeah. Right? That even though we think Tony is such a badass, they're kind of like, oh, yeah, the Jersey thing. I guess Tony's pretty cool, though. Right? Yeah, yeah. Which is definitely the sense I get, that there's a whole vibrant New York underground, underworld, rather, life going on over there that we see very little of. But there's enough of a connection here because of the Esplanade, right? Yeah. This thing that is just so huge on the show that uh, suddenly New Jersey has importance. Right. And it gives Tony a power and a position he's never had before with New York. And I think that's a really cool introduction. Yeah. Um, I, but to your point about the, the perspective there, it does speak to the fact that Tony is very smart. We yeah, know that. Yeah. We know that he's smart and he's a good leader and he can hang with the best of them. But the fact that Paulie is one of Tony's top guys... And 
the New York people are very dismissive of him, like he's kind of a joke. Yeah. That speaks a lot to what how what the dynamic is there. For sure. I think New York respects Tony, but I think that it probably stops there. Right. Um, you know, they've said many times, they don't really consider Jersey a family. They're just like a crew Yeah. that's just kind of out there. No matter how many different crews there are, it's all just kind of like, oh, the Jersey thing. Mm. Um, I like how New York is depicted. I like the New York characters. I wish we actually got more. Then it's basically just Carmine and Johnny Sack. And then, you know, Peeps and Carmine Jr. occasionally come in. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to see more from them over there. But honestly, those two actors, the actor playing Carmine, Lip, right? Something Tony Lip. Tony Lip. Tony Lip and, and Vince Curatola are unbelievably good. Yes. Like, you only need two people to be all of New York, and that's fine for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they're... They carry... That, that's an important note. Performance-wise... They carry the gravitas of, of of bosses of a New York family, right. and I remember at first first introduction because he gets thrown. He, they, the Sopranos does one of these things where they throw the character in like they've always been there for their intro. You see Carmine, and you're thinking that's the boss of a New York. That's one of the boss of one of the New York families. But once you get to know him and see how he operates, it's like, oh yeah, this right. is, this is an old time boss. Sure. What, what, the, way what he, I... the way he orchestrates the hit against Johnny. And well, that's the what I'm saying. Like, the way he speaks, or even like the little hand gesture he does when he wants Johnny Sack to oh, yeah, hang yeah. up the phone, the little one Just finger little like, one finger. no, no, nope. beep, beep, yep. close the conversation down yep. when Tony's not cooperating. Um, and uh, in that episode where they're getting information the first time about the uh, uh, Tony's real estate thing on Freeland Heisen Avenue, and uh, T- Carmine is at the head of the table, he's the boss, but he's just shoveling linguine into his mouth uh, and Johnny is communicating with Tony as if like Carmine can't be bothered to have <laughs> right. the conversation. But it's uh, but it's Johnny using Carmine's voice, like it's great. It's it's really great. Uh, but I, I welcome the threat of New York. It's it's it, what, what's interesting about it for Tony is once Tony became boss and cemented himself and got through the Richie April crisis, you know it's hard for Tony to be challenged by an external force. Uh, so. To have something like New York as a constant looming threat. And the fact that geographically, and they have a lot of great shots illustrating this, when they can have these meetings where New York City is literally looming over these Jersey characters. It's great. It's cool. And they use the geography well to illustrate that. They cast these two roles very well. Uh, And uh, yeah, and look, it's provided the show a lot of fun moments too because they have similar but also competing interests. These are two different organizations. The back and forth beating up Vic the appraiser is a great example of, <laughs> I'm only the appraiser. Only the appraiser. <laughs> Go in there, get your appraising shit, and stop fucking appraising. <laughs> yeah, I love the New York stuff too, and uh, I want to stay away from spoilers, but gener- but just I'll say briefly that there's been a lot of great build with it in this season, mm-hmm. and next season I think the tension and storylines with New York get even better. Yeah. So. Well, and again, no spoilers, but Jordan wants more New York characters. You know, stay tuned, everybody. Uh, it's going to be... Oh, dear. Gonna, yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I would say that New York is at least one of the top three cities in the world, wouldn't you guys? Did you say top three? A top, top three, three city? I do love top three. I don't, so, I don't know which one we're about to do, so I can't... How about uh, top three music cues? Oh, so, top three oh, must top be top three. three. Bing, 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 bing. A. Oh. Top three music cues. Music is so essential to this show. Uh, it, 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 you know, David Chase, I believe, handpicks every piece of music that graces the screen. So, uh, and it's used to such great effect that it has to be a category every year. We could do a top ten music cues, and it wouldn't feel ad- adequate. 
But let's go around. Who wants to start us off on music cues? I'll start. Um, I have two honorable mentions. Um, yeah, that's for all of these. I'm sorry, guys. No, it's okay. <laughs> I have two honorable mentions. Uh, my first honorable mention is um, Another Brick in the Wall, which is sung by Tony in the shower in Mergers and Acquisitions mm. while Carmella is robbing him. <laughs> <laughs> Taking all the money from the bird feeder, to which uh, she's entitled. Yep. Uh, that's an honorable mention for me. Uh, my second honorable mention would be uh, My Rifle, My Pony, and Me, which we've mm. talked quite a lot about. Um, which is a Dean Martin one. It's in two episodes. It's in For All Debts, Public and Private. It's also in Pileline. Closes out Pileline. So those are my honorable mentions. Uh, my actual number three is going to be um, uh, Drink to Me Only With Thine Eyes by Dean Martin, live from the Sands Casino, from the deck of the Stugats in Whitecaps. Yes. <laughs> nice. Okay, three quick honorable mentions. My Rifle, My Pony, and Me, specifically yeah. at the end of Pileline. Yeah. Uh, Dawn. The end of Christopher. Ooh, great music cue. Mm. Uh, last honorable mention, uh, Vesuvio, Vesuvio, um, the dance mm. uh, played in the dance sequence at Furio's house in the wait and close out the episode as yeah. well. Number three uh, music cue is the end of Eloise uh, when Tony says she's a beautiful, independent young woman. Isn't that what you wanted? Carmela Flat, yes. And the song by Annie Lennox called Little Birds plays. Mm. We'll get there. Mm-hmm. My number three is what I'm calling the Furio theme. Vesuvio is the name of the yeah. song, I think, Ooh, right? Yeah. Follow that. Yep. So you're we your runner-up, and that was uh, your number three? That was my number awesome. three. yep. My number three is silly. My my top two are actually are not, but... Uh, <laughs> number three, from No Show, season four, episode two. If I were a carpenter, <laughs> and you were a douchebag. <laughs> Sung to the guy sitting doing no work. Yeah, yeah, Chris, right. yeah, yeah, Chris just rolls up to the Esplanade construction site, no, acting capo. Yep. Anyway, so good. That's my number three. Uh, yeah, all right. So uh, my number two is The Shy Lights. Uh, oh, girl. Uh, Tony is singing along to it in the car, where he is clearly thinking of Irina and decides he's going to stop by Ron Zellman's place with a belt. Paul's my number well. two is yes. Oh Girl by the Shy Lights. That's my number two also. Wow, look at that. My number two is Layla from Whitecaps. Very Ooh, good. We'll yeah. talk about the yes. meaning there. And the story of that song, yeah. And I'll just, since I'm at this point in the circle and we're going to go around with our number ones, yeah. my number one is Oh Girl, Shy Lights. Okay, there you go. So uh, My number one is Little Bird by Annie Lennox yes. at the end of Eloise as well. So that was a really good poll, Paul. Uh, my number one is from Everybody Hurts, uh, the dream sequence at Gloria's house, a, a late 1950s jukebox band called the Aquatones. Mm. Uh, the leader was a young woman, a soprano, um, and the song is called You. Mm. Um, mm. Haunting and gorgeous. My number one is Dean Martin at the Sands. There you go. The Stugats. Okay. Gorgeous. So how do we want to handle this? Do we want to talk about the uh, the unique ones first? Or yeah, that's we good. we have a lot of like jumbled whatever uh so let's talk about like if you have one that nobody else mentioned on your top three none of mine are unique they're all mentioned by either paul or lily i think okay so who who had uh did anyone have a weird one uh my number one i don't think anybody else had yeah one. you what was your your number one was yeah from the uh everybody hurts okay Glor- all right so then why don't we just talk about um what was your number three jordan could we start with uh drink to me only with i yeah, know dean martin live at the sands casino from the deck of the Stugats. So, Lily, one. it's your number one. Why don't you lead it? I mean, I just love that moment. It's it's 
spoiler alert, it's going to be in one of my favorite moments. I love that. I love everything about that boat in the, where are they? In the ocean. The shore. <laughs> yeah, off of Seabrook. <laughs> On yeah. the shore. Uh, and just ruining A.S.'s ass. <laughs> <laughs> just makes me so happy. And I also just love Dean Martin. So it just... It just brings me such joy, and it brings a light in such a heavy episode. So I think the music is really important. I agree. I also appreciate that it's not just the recorded version of that song. It's specifically the full concert version. Yeah. It's the, the live at the Sands version, which I think is just great. Mm-hmm. Should we talk about um, Shy Lights, since a lot of us had it? Yeah, Shy Lights, oh girl. This was your number one, wasn't it, Chris? Why don't you lead? Yeah. Uh, look, this this is one of those rare moments where... The song, I don't want to say it was ruined because it's a great song and I can listen to it and enjoy it, but I can't not think of this when I hear this song. Yeah. And it's it, it, I love when they do this, when they not only have a song that matches the scene in an interesting way, but when the song is actually something in the world of the show that drives the action. They yeah. did a very good job with this when they're having the conversation in the, uh, the sauna locker room about uh, when Zelman first tells Tony about Arena. And you can see he's, like, screaming inside, but he's doing the cordial business thing. Right. And then it gets triggered in the car by that song because he's remembering that conversation because they specifically talked about the Shy Lights and that song. Uh, and Tony's singing along with it, crying, and then you just see that the acting in that moment is so good. He just, I love that turn, that moment where he's just like, Nah, I can't let this go. And he just turns the car, and he goes from crying, quote, like a bitch, as he accuses Zelman of in a few minutes, to just absolute biblical lashings on this man. As yeah. this sweet, sentimental song continues Continu- to play. Right. Like a sad clown would do, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, of course. That's what clowns do. They beat you almost to death with a belt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's one of my favorite things about the cue. Not only, I mean, I, I, I love this kind of music, and I love that song. But that it, we all have a susceptibility to music. It's part of our humanness. It's part of our sentiment. But what does the sentiment bring out in Tony? Brutality. Yeah. It's 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 pretty harsh and memorable for sure. Yeah. Earlier in that same episode, Zelman actually asks, like, some days, like, I wish I could be punished. Well, got your wish, Ron. Right. <laughs> Enjoy. Uh, also, just a, a great song. Yeah. Yes. Beautiful. Just a, an awesome song that I love to hear. Yeah. Well, my number one was Little Bird. Was that also yours, Paul? Paul had a number, uh, number three. Okay. Let's talk about Little Bird. Uh, well, Little Bird uh, closes Eloise. Um, so um, it is a, it's a powerful moment for Carmela. Um, Tony is trying to frame the happenings of that episode in a positive way, kind of saying that, like, look, we, we raised Meadow. Uh, she's become a, a, a beautiful young woman who's uh, independent, and she's out there living her own life. And in that moment... Uh, Carmela realizes just how trapped she is and and how deprived she is of a life of her own independence. Uh, the lyrics to Little Bird are, are beautiful. I would encourage uh, our listeners to either listen to the song or just or look up some of the lyrics. Uh, but they speak to uh, wanting to have the, the freedom to, to fly uh, and to go out and spread your wings, and it's something Carmela cannot do. She feels like she is uh, pretty literally caged. Mm. I can't do any better than that. That's exactly why I love that song. Let's talk about the um, Vesuvio, Furio theme, and then we'll talk about, uh, after that, we'll do Layla and uh, you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. 
Yeah, well, with that song, Vesuvio, you know, it just, it's such a great symbol of her, uh, Carmela's fantasy of Furio, right? The song feels very exotic. So does Furio. It's very different than anything she's listening to or doing or yep. enjoying. And so it it makes a lot of sense that that song would latch into her fantasy and then start this um, association with Furio and the fantasy and the trying to spread your wings but not being able to. Yeah. And Vesuvio is taken from Vesuvius. Does everyone here know what Vesuvius is? The volcano. The volcano. Is there a more appropriate metaphor in nature for this entire season? Right. Right. Something that's going to erupt. Volcano yeah. that just mm-hmm. bubbles, bubbles, bubbles yeah. until it erupts into something devastating. Vesuvius sure. is also quite near Naples, where yeah. Furio's from. And that song, if you look up the lyrics and translate the Italian, it's about the people being trapped there under mm-hmm. its power. Um, which for me suggested at least possibly the ways in which Carmela is trapped. But even people like me who don't speak a word of Italian, you got to get from that song that it's both dangerous and sexy. Yeah. Which is what that story is. That's why I love it. Yeah. Mm. All right. So uh, my number two song that we haven't, we talked about Old Girl, which was uh, my number one. My number two was Layla. And I love when the show picks music that works for two reasons. First reason, this one works for three. <laughs> the first, uh, the first and most obvious thing you would do when writing a show and you have a character listening to the radio, is what would this guy be listening to? Well, this is right in Tony's music wheelhouse. This is the kind of music he listens to. It's the era of music he listens to. It's the genre of music he listens to. So it works on that level. Uh, it works on the level of it's familiar uh, for collapse of mob movie life because in Goodfellas. A different part of the song Layla is playing, but it's still the same song when everything is tumbling down, the bricks are, are being pulled out, and the whole house of cards begins to fall. And that's happening here. It works on this third level, though, because the, the lyrics, first of all, and then the story of the song, uh, which, you know, this song has uh, a, a hell of a story behind it. Um, first of all, just, just lyrically... What do you do when you get lonely and nobody's waiting by your side? You've been running and hiding much too long. You know it's just your foolish pride. You got me on my knees, Layla. I'm begging, darling, please, Layla. Darling, won't you ease my worried mind? <laughs> so, uh, and then, of course, there's the story of Eric Clapton um, writing the song about an affair he had with George Harrison's wife. So there's there's that level of it, too. The fact that it's based on extramarital affair. It just... That's the genius of The Sopranos, is they'll pick a song that works three ways. Yeah. It's like one of the most loaded songs you could pick for anything, for yep. all those reasons yep. you mentioned. Yep. Yeah. The, the surface level... the th- You know, a bad writer... Well, a bad showrunner would just put any fucking song and it wouldn't matter what it is. Yeah, what could they afford? What's in budget? A good writer would have... What would this character be listening to? David Chase and the geniuses on The Sopranos pick something that work on eight different fucking levels and that's why this show is so good. But that's mine. Paul, you had an awesome, interesting number one choice here. Uh, so this song has played in a few different things on The Sopranos. I think David Chase likes to use it. I think he slows it down. It's in one of the dreams in season one, isn't it? Yeah, it's in the dream in... Um, the Pork Store. The Pork Store in uh, 
Tennessee Malt Asante. Yeah, they have our sausages. Yeah, yeah, it's playing very lightly in the background, like in this dream. It also plays very lightly in the background in one of the last scenes in that stupid fucking Many Saints movie they made. Um, <laughs> but forget that. Uh, Another time. Yeah, it plays here in the sequence where Ju- um, Gloria has died. And Tony goes to her place in this dream sequence. She's making all the weird stuff, the sexual tension, the death in the air. And this song is playing in the background. And the lyrics are, you broke my heart. You. Yes, you. This is a, It's a manifestation of Tony, as Melfi asks him, why are you so quick to blame yourself? Mm. But this is what's happening there. It's haunting. It's beautiful. I agree. I like this. This is another one of those songs that... I've mentioned on this show before, I have a Spotify list with every song that's ever been on the show. This is one I always enjoy when it comes up. I like this era of music. This is like Chris D'Amato cruising around on a nice day in his car music. Yeah. Matthew Weiner, who ended up working on The Sopranos, also used uh, the Aquatone song for... Mad Men? A very important scene in Mad Men. Yeah. Yep. What's actually perfect, Paul, is this is an excellent transition, the fact that you picked that song, into our next subject that I want to get into here, which is... We address it every retrospective, uh, but we have a particularly interesting situation here. Uh, therapy, Melfi, and we'll also use this segue to talk about the dreams of season four, which are a big step up, actually, from some of the previous uh, dream incarnations on the show. So let's touch down just on Tony and Melfi's journey this season, because uh, it ostensibly ends. I mean, we're a spoiler-free podcast. He may never go back to Melfi again. But as far as season four is concerned, they're done. Um, and it was an interesting journey getting there. Tony found out, of course, about Gloria's suicide. We had the excellent dream sequence that featured Paul's song. And we also had some really eerie dream sequences in Calling All Cars, just these unsettling, stifling, confusing dreams that Tony had uh, the woman on the stairs. So let's talk about all of it. Dreams, therapy, Melfi. Sorry. Um, well, I think the most notable thing about therapy in this season is that it ends. Yeah. Um, I was reading a little bit about this. I guess at some point, David Chase or maybe the other writers, they kind of felt like they had nothing left to do with therapy, at least at this point in the show. And I couldn't help but feel similarly. Like some of the therapy scenes I felt were either very brief or didn't seem to like have the same weight that they used to. There was a little more space between them as well. There was well. more space, and I was really feeling like Lorraine Bracco was being like kind of sidelined, like Melfi didn't really have anything else. It was almost making me wish that Melfi had some other plot that was not therapy, just therapy-related, like if they could tie her into something else. Which all would be bad writing if it wasn't intentional. I know, and, I know. And, right, because... And addressed. Because yeah. Melfi, Tony flat out says, you know... Uh, that it gets therapy gets off track and yeah. they end up just chatting a lot about whatever. And right, it's his fault, but yeah. So um, yeah, therapy ends, calling all cars, right? But then, as we discover in Whitecaps, he still needs therapy. He hasn't really worked through any of the issues that still destroy his life and the lives of others. He needs to be there on a permanent basis. It's not just something that's going to be like a temporary time in his life where he once went to therapy, but he hasn't really accepted that yet. And uh, I, I feel for Melfi in trying to move someone like this along who is so stubborn and still unwilling to face a lot of the issues that beleaguer him. Of course it makes sense that therapy stopped because 
if he were still in therapy, I don't know that he would have spiraled the way he did. So structurally, it needed that that comfort needed to go away. Yeah. And unfortunately, to your point, the reason I think we couldn't have another Melfi storyline is because she acts as the moral compass of the show, and that kind of goes out the window as you get further and further into season four. So we can't have that mirror. I don't think we can have that mirror right now and, and create this chaos. Yeah. All excellent points. I, I think also in the past few seasons, what Melfi has had to deal with being a kind of moral center of the show are various challenges, being it treating Tony, then feeling uh, guilt after letting him go, dealing with the, the horrors of the rape and its repercussions and aftermath in season three, and even to some degree in this season, but now that she's settled and is there to help Tony, I think we're again focusing on him, and he wasn't, he didn't want to go there, he wasn't ready. Um, they had come to a certain point, but it's a point where you do have to keep digging, or the therapy will plateau. He doesn't want to go there, and he leaves. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it might be as simple as that. Yeah. And it's sad because Melfi, the fact that nothing is going on with Melfi is not only deliberate, but actually important. Because let's not forget that they were making great progress early in season three for the first time ever. Because season one was about Melfi making, helping Tony realize what was going on with his mother. Yeah. And that all exploded in a way that disrupted the therapy for the first batch of season two. Season two was aimless and unproductive because Melfi was scared of Tony and was having trouble dealing with that and the, their therapy said so that was the most unproductive the therapy was in that back half of season two tony was defiant he was flippant and melfi would not press him mm-hmm. season three comes around and melfi is on him they start she he she he demands more of her and she starts digging and they start going a little bit into root causes the meat connection tony's past what triggers the anxiety attacks depression is rage turned inward all of these great insights that she provides and then she gets derailed by the rape. Yeah. Which she was ready to send him to a behaviorist, which I don't know, maybe in retrospect might have been the better move for treatment, but she makes a move when he uh, talks about wanting to leave uh, after, in the critical employee of the month episode. She just shakes her head no. She wants him to stay, and that's an important decision. So she's dealing with her own baggage in that, in that season, and she um, helps him connect the dots with Gloria. It's fascinating stuff. But then here we are, and Tony is past the point where he is seeing the, the day-to-day benefit because the real work, now they're like out of panic attack land, right? And they have to really delve into the stuff that Tony can't or won't talk about and Melfi has nothing going on in her life that prevents her from doing the work with Tony. And Tony's just not having it. He yeah. sees more value, especially with his current fuck everything, eat everything mindset. He says to her, I could have, uh, all that money I could have dropped in here, I could have bought a fucking Ferrari. At least I would have got a blowjob out of that. He sees that as the more valuable option. Yeah. Which is a sad state of affairs. But ultimately, he uh, he decides to call it. He gives the timeout gesture. It's, it's, yeah. Uh, and unfortunately, that same episode in which he decides to end therapy, Calling All Cars, provides us with two of our most frightening and probably important dream sequences, mm. both of which indicate that he really should probably remain in therapy. We have the first dream sequence, which is kind of like the classic warning dream sequence. 
change is coming. Things are about to change. Carmella's in the driver's seat of the car. She's changing. Ralphie, on his bald head, is crawling the caterpillar in front of him. Next to him is uh, Gloria and then Svetlana. Is that the order mm-hmm. of the of the passengers? Yeah. Right? Uh, really strange. Uh, very. Where's this car going? What's about to happen? Uh, I don't know. Right? And then the second dream, which is... Uh, I don't know. For me, I, un- unforgettable. Like a the, the, the most frightening, 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 frightening dream. Yeah. Where he <laughs> is the uh, Italian immigrant come mm-hmm. to work on the house to do the masonry work. Uh, Tony, of course, has referenced before that his forebears were masons and had worked on the church locally in his town. Uh, comes and sees the dark lady on the stairs, who is undoubtedly the uh, shade or the eidolon of Livia. And it is the thing he cannot confront and no longer has the tools to confront now that he's abandoned Melfi, his guide, into that psychological underworld. How can you confront the thing on the stairs without your Virgil to take you there? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you can't. Uh, now she will just remain up on the stairs, gazing down upon you in judgment and casting her horrible spells at you and, and, and haunting you. Yeah, And, and you br- can't get closer. He moves in and the dream cuts out. Yeah. And, the, and the brilliance of him not being able to speak the language suggests that without Melfi, he doesn't even he does he can't even come close to expressing the the root of his problem. In therapy right. he, he says just had, fuck the dream, it's just a dream, yeah. but he wants to engage. He does something he, yes, he does Melfi's have, the only one that can walk him up that staircase. Mm. He drops Melfi in the same episode that he takes on Carmine Lupertazzi Junior as an <laughs> advisor. This is not this is not a lateral move. This is not good. I don't think I'm violating our spoiler policy with this next piece because I think it's obvious to anyone paying attention to the show that this isn't what's going to happen. But there's an alternate version of season five that I would be fascinated to watch. Fascinated to watch. Where Tony, after losing Carmella, realizes how badly he's fucked all this up and like pays Melfi to go with him somewhere far away from New Jersey and just work on himself every day for a few months, privately, one-on-one, get to the root of my problems, <laughs> right. and come back a changed man. And come back and do My Name is Earl. Right. <laughs> now that's something... My name is Tom. That's fascinating, and I would watch that. He would do uh, the 12th step, right? Right. <laughs> right. Where he actually goes there and is able to talk about the things that he can't talk about. Uh, but we saw what happened. He hung up the phone, and it's, uh, it's a sad state of affairs. This is really when he needs Melfi the most, and he's... Uh, they're just not at that place. Those dream sequences are great. I love the way this show does the dream sequences. It's really, no other show gets it like this. The swapping faces, the swapping people, the locations. You know, you can be in a dream, you can be talking to somebody who looks totally foreign to you, but you just feel, that, oh, that's my mom. It's a weird shit like that. The Sopranos gets it like that. Yeah. You're in a place that isn't your home, but you feel in the dream like your home. Yeah, I think I like the dream sequences in Calling All Cars more than I like the ones in Funhouse. I think overall these are more valuable to me. Mm. Yeah. Funhouse is the last episode we have, like, really significant ones, right? The big, big dreams. Is there anything huge in three from a, season three from a dream perspective? I actually, now that I'm thinking back on it. No, it's no. There's flashbacks. There's actually. flashbacks, yeah. but no, no like, Yeah, big... Funhouse is the last episode that really has dreams in it. Um, mm. I assume we'll have more in the future. Um, I really enjoy them on the show because I think a show that deals with psychology as one of its forward things that it's exploring just does really well with them, and um, they frighten me. Mm. 
Uh, I'm going to ask Jordan and Jordan only this question because you have very little memory. And I know you've, you remember more about the last seasons than this, but like, what do you hope, assuming she's still in the cast, for Dr. Melfi next season? Is there any, any particular, if on the therapy end of the show, like let's say you just finished watching season four and you don't know what's coming next. Yeah. And we're just talking like, oh, what's season five going to be? What are you hoping to see out of Melfi if she's still around in season five? I need Dr. Melfi to basically swoop in and save Tony mm. uh, because the track he's on at the end of Whitecaps uh, tells me he's going to die very soon. <laughs> uh, I can't imagine he has much to live for beyond his family. Uh, which I think he's he didn't realize how important that was and how he should have been centering that. I don't know what he's going to do without Carmela to center him. He needs someone to ground him, and only Melfi's going to be able to do that. Uh, if he doesn't get back to her, uh, he's on a path of ruin. Uh, I think he'll end up in jail much sooner. Uh, the panic attacks could return. He could die. Um, I, I think without... Uh, I, I hope he realizes now. I think he does, because the phone call on Whitecaps, even though he hangs up the phone, I think he's realizing, I'm about to drown. Um, I hope they find a way to get back together. I'm hoping Melfi comes back in a way that is even bigger than before. Again, because if she doesn't, I just don't know how we sustain a plot that has any logic in it, you know, other than the certain logic of, of death, of things coming to an end. We'll see. I like it. Speaking of things I like, how about top three quotes? Oh, top three, top three, I love that we've never even bothered to come up with any music for top threes. Just hooting and hollering yeah. and singing the words top three. Is yeah. that weird? No, I love it. What I love about it, too, is like if I were one of our listeners who didn't know any of us, I would hate the whole top three song thing, <laughs> and we just keep doing it. We're never going to stop. That's Sorry. right. Yeah, you're going to have to live with it if you want to listen to Can't stop, won't stop. Listen to the rest of this bot. amazing content. Uh, <laughs> top three quotes. This, to me, is one of the most difficult categories maybe even more so than moments and episodes because this show, you could do top three quotes every episode and you'd still be missing quotes. Yeah. Uh, so this is always the hardest. What I love about this is we're probably all going to have different quotes. Uh, Paul, you want to start us off on this one? Sure. I have plenty of honorable mentions. Uh, <laughs> first one um, from the the wait when... What's next? He gets to fuck her for a billion and comes and he says he wants to fuck her. <laughs> complete murder. Yep. Um, two is from the very first episode when they bring in the uh, Icelandic uh, stewardess. Uh, excuse me. Um, flight attendants. <laughs> and uh, one of the, the beautiful blonde, tall one. Uh, Tony says, "Where are you girls from?" And she says, "Reykjavik." And Tony says, "You do, and you'll clean it up." <laughs> and, um, uh, third one is uh, from Everybody Hurts when AJ takes the guys to the pork store and he says it's a pork store and one of the friends says it's a gay strip club murder um, the fourth honorable mention is from Strong Silent Type of course the intervention when Silvio says when I came in to open one morning your head was in the toilet your head was upside down in the toilet water disgusting <laughs> Uh, number three very simple Chris from whoever did this I didn't <laughs> That's my number three. Whoa! Okay. I didn't. I say it literally all the time. Yeah, look. Boom. I didn't. Anytime Chris asks me if I did something and I didn't, I didn't. I just love it. It's very funny. So, uh, <laughs> I have one runner-up uh, for this uh, in uh, the episode Watching Too Much Television. When Paulie is finally out of prison, this is my honorable mention. They play Nancy with the uh, with the laughing face 
and Paulie gets really sentimental and wispy for a moment says, my song. <laughs> <laughs> and a few minutes later, Bobby says to Christopher, it's like, the fuck, what's this song? <laughs> that just always makes me laugh. But my number three quote is actually too long of a quote uh, to speak out here, but it's Tony's rant at the end of Christopher to Silvio in the car. Is that your number three? Yeah, oh, wow, there you go. Okay. Boom. Yes. Give it. Yeah, please. Or whatever I you were going to say. I thought these were going to be yeah. way more different. Do you want to have, Chris, come here. Come have the back and forth with me. Okay. Here, do you want to read Tony or Sylvia? You want to read uh, Tony? Sure. Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> where are we? Oh, will you fucking stop? Group. What the fuck happened to Gary Cooper? That's what I'd like to know. Uh, He died because he fought all those Sioux and all those Westerns. <laughs> oh, fuck that. Gary Cooper, there was an American, the strong, silent type. He did what he had to do. He faced down the Miller gang when none of those other assholes in town would lift a finger to help him. Did he complain? Did he say, oh, I come from this poor Texas Irish illiterate <laughs> background or whatever the fuck, so leave me the fuck out of it because my people got fucked over. <laughs> right. It, we go it, on it goes on yeah, and yeah. on. See, not for nothing, but you get confused here. That yeah, guy yeah. was in the movies. <laughs> To which I, we could probably yeah, conclude yeah. with Tony saying, what the fuck difference does that make? Columbus was so long ago, he might as well have been a fucking movie. Okay, so I just want to... Gary Cooper? Yeah, he was getting... No! <laughs> yeah, that's my number three so, as well. So, okay, so I just want to acknowledge the very funny thing that happened here. Paul and Lily had the same number three with I didn't. And Jordan and I had the same number three <laughs> yes. with the entire random Christopher, yes. Christopher. Amazing. I yes, love that that happened. Very funny. All right. Number two, uh, Paul? Number two from Calling All Cars. I am reminded of Louis the Whatever's finance minister. Durr something. <laughs> <laughs> and there's more of it, but let's just end it with Durr something, because when Rhea Bruto says that, I fall out laughing. Beautiful. My number two is Dr. Melfi. I ask that you extend me the same courtesy that you would a crack addict. <laughs> uh, watching too much television, right? Yeah. Amazing. Um, mine is a... Uh, this might be cheating because it's technically like two quotes, uh, but it's... Um, I'm going to call police if it's cheating, so... We're going to call the quote police. It's the way that Tony and Paulie are cheering on Pile Mai in the episode Pile Mai. <laughs> Come on, girl. Go, girl. Run, you fucking nag! Oh, Ralphie. Yeah, yes. right, yeah. Just, I think that's so perfect. Amazing. Yeah. And especially considering, like, the way they treat and talk about and two women. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect yeah. writing. Yeah, I had uh, an honorable mention that I forgot to do that I just want to do very, very quickly, which is just, it's it's Johnny Sack at the end of The Weight. Uh, no more weight remarks, Tony. They're hurtful and they're destructive. Mm. Um, for as much as we got to, you know, be frustrated with Johnny Sack about uh, his frustration about the jokes about his wife, I thought it came from a place that was really good yeah. and, and worthy of conversation, and I felt I understood him. More than maybe the people in the episode did. I don't. I don't know. Yeah. I thought it was good. Um, that was an honorable mention for me. My actual number two is uh, Carmela. Uh, really a prescient uh, quote. Uh, she says in "For All Debts Public and Private," uh, trying to get Tony's attention uh, about her the future of her finances. Everything comes to an end, which is. Just a, a thematic quote for the season. Right. Yeah. And, it's, and, and they drop it in the first episode That's of the yeah. season. Um, I don't have anything that profound. My number one <laughs> quote is from an unnamed character in watching too much television. I told you young people that crack is some bad shit. <laughs> <laughs> Perfectly delivered. Perfect. Uh, my number one is Silvio in the intervention. I mean, everyone else has said it. I can do my impression. 
I came to open up one morning. There you were with your head half in the toilet. Your hair was in the toilet water. <laughs> Disgusting. It's <laughs> a great quote. It's so good. It just makes me laugh and laugh. Um, mine is going to be self-explanatory, but the only thing I'll say is the consequence of my number one quote is earth-shattering. Speaking of 98 pounds, I hear Ginny Sachs having a 90-pound mole taken off her ass. There it is. It just sets so much up. Yep. Uh, and it... I can't even talk about the full weight of that quote at this point, but that fucking quote does so much damage and so much has so much profound impact on the rest of the season. I, I had to have it. Sure. Uh, mine's also tied up in moments, my number one, um, and I feel like we'll revisit this, but it's specifically this writing and this delivery, which I cannot even uh, imitate, so I won't. I'll just read the words. This is Carmela Soprano in White Caps. Every morning when he'd come to pick you up, I would look forward to it all night long in bed next to you. Those nights when you were actually in the bed, and he would ring the doorbell, I felt like my heart would come out of my chest. He would smile, and we'd talk, and then you would come down the stairs. And I felt probably like someone who was terminally ill, and somehow they managed to forget it for a minute. And then it all comes back. Oof. Brutal. Which is, uh, brutal. But yeah. amazing. And so wonderfully written. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, Sopranos fans, that's the end of part one of our season four retrospective. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back two Sundays from now for part two. In part two, you got a lot of great stuff to look forward to. We have a conversation about Christopher, Adriana. We have more top threes. We have uh, top three characters and performances, top three episodes, and top three moments. Plus, we do our favorite new segment, Listener Mail. We got a lot of great stuff. Join us in two Sundays for part two of our season four retrospective. I got myself a girl.